now playing Melody Time from 1948. Walt Disney Movies, destroying your childhood one movie at a time. My name is Nick and I am your tour guide, and today we are going to do our fifth package film in a row. Episode 10 is devoted to Melody Time, the 1948 package feature that is pretty much make mine music all over again. We've got, instead of ten shorts, we've got seven set to popular and folk music, and the music frames the work again. We're also seeing the Andrews Sisters and the Kingsmen again, and we've got some new performers into the fold, uh, featuring uh, Buddy Clark as the Master of Ceremonies, Francis Langford, Freddie Martin and his orchestra, Dennis Day, Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians, Ethel Smith on the organ, Roy Rogers and Trigger, the smartest horse in the movies, uh, with the Sons of the Pioneers, uh, Bob Nolan, the Denning Sisters, and child actors Bobby Driscoll and Luanna Patton. Luana Patton, of course, was the uh, recipient of the party that Edgar Bergen was throwing in the uh, previous movie that we looked at, and Bobby Driscoll is a child actor that was in the Disney family, and he and Luana Patton actually worked together on a couple of films, including Song of the South, which was 1946. And this is 1948 that we're in right now, so they've done, I believe this is the third film that they appeared in together. We have the return of Donald Duck and Jose Carioca, who I think at this point is just Joe Carioca. We also have the Araquan bird who comes back as well. In case you were curious, by the way, this is the third appearance of Jose Carioca in the 1940s. And the next time you're going to see him is in a little movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But then again, who wasn't in that movie that you haven't seen in a very long time? Everybody shows up at the end. Melody Time came out in May of 1948. Mixed reviews, of course. That seems to be the normal. However, since the shorts were so inexpensive to put together, it appears that this was profitable for Disney. Again, much has been the pretty much standard in this particular uh, field here. We don't have any uh, box office information, and if J. Michael Barrier didn't talk about it in his book, that's the only source that we really have at this point that's going to have any information. If Box Office Mojo doesn't have it, and J. Michael Barrier doesn't talk about it, I have nothing I can report to you. We're dealing with some of the same things we dealt with in the past, including censorship. And once again, cigarettes have been censored uh, during the Pecos Bill portion, the final portion of the show. And uh, for whatever reason, in some versions, Pecos Bill, who rolls cigarettes and does it so eloquently with his mouth and his tongue, uh, it's cut out. And I don't know what, why this would be cut out. I don't understand what people think seeing a cartoon is going to do. I, I was never that impressionable. But then again, some people might have been. Just uh, a little bit more on the background here. The shorts themselves have been re-released on various occasions. They've been seen on various Disney programs, such as the Disneyland program, which is, you know, what we know as Walt Disney's... Um, the Wonderful World of Disney, rather. But as a whole, Melody Time has never been re-released in the movies together. 
So the shorts, they've shown up on TV many times, but the movie itself never came back out again. And I think that is probably the best way to reissue something like this. You're not going to see the whole thing come out in one piece when you can piecemeal it together, especially with televisions becoming more and more the norm. Disney has the outlet, the Disneyland TV show, the Wonderful World or Disney, whatever whatever version of it you want to call, that has run for years and years and years. He's got the avenue to put the shorts on once they've been released in the movies. There's no reason to revisit it. It's not going to make money in the TV era. So I understand why he's doing that. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with um, seven shorts, and let's try and get through this as quickly as possible. We open to a happy-sounding theme called Melody Time, and uh, we have a stage being painted on an easel along with some drama masks, welcoming you along to come along and have some fun. Segment number one is Once Upon a Wintertime, as sung by Francis Langford, and Romance is the theme. Love's Young Dream is what we're dealing with here. It features a young couple by the names of Jenny and Joe, and they are riding through the December snow on a horse-drawn sleigh. They ride to a frozen pond, and they skate for a little bit. Animals in couples also appear. we got rabbits and squirrels and birds. And, of course, you've got the horses that were pulling the sleigh. That's a couple as well. Now Joe shows off his skating skills, but Jenny is not a very good skater. Jenny also gets mad at Joe when he covers her in ice shavings. But, you know, when he breaks uh, his his ice skating and it shoots all the ice that is coming off the ground onto her. But she also might be playing hard to get because there's a female rabbit there that is doing the same thing as Jenny. And she is also mad and she accompanies Jenny on the way. So Joe and the male rabbit are trying to get their two ladies to come back. However, Jenny wanders onto thin ice, even though the male rabbit is trying to stop her and the girl rabbit. The male rabbit actually causes the ice to break by sticking the thin ice sign back into the ice. And then Joe, the male rabbit, the squirrels, birds, and horses from the sleigh band together to save Jenny and the female rabbit from going into the water and freezing to death. In the end, Jenny and Joe ride off on their sleigh, waving goodbye to their animal friends, and the short ends as they enter a dark area and Jenny kisses Joe, and he is smitten. Back in the house, Jenny and Joe are in a double picture frame, photos of them are anyway, and Joe closes that frame. He reaches out and he closes it from within the picture, presumably for some whoopee-making privacy. <gasps> Segment number two is called The Bumble Boogie. It is from Freddie Martin and his orchestra. Basically, what you're looking at here is a jazz interpretation of Flight of the Bumblebee. Not much to say. The short consists of a bee who fights against the various flowers he encounters as they attack him in tune and in time with the music. The bee is also attacked by a piano keyboard that is made to look like a cobra. That's pretty much the extent of it. It's a couple minutes long. Not really much going on here. There's two shorts in here that are the meat and potatoes, both. The the first one would be The Legend of Johnny Appleseed, segment number three. Dennis Day is the narrator. He does all the voices, including the old settler, who is the narrator, Johnny Appleseed, and Johnny's Angel. We are introduced to the symbols of John Chapman, the legend, a tin pot hat, a bag of apple seeds, and a holy book. A very religious short. Let me just give you a little example of what Johnny Appleseed is singing at the beginning. <clears throat> the Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need. The sun and rain and an apple seed, yes, he's been good to me. I owe the Lord so much for everything I see. 
am certain if I weren't for him, there'd be no apples on this limb. He's been good to me. I had to put on the voice because that's kind of what he sounds like when he sings. One day Johnny spies a group of pioneers heading west in their wagons to settle the great unknown, and this event causes Johnny to hear a voice encouraging him to go west. The voice belongs to an angel who takes the form of a middle-aged man in common garb who sits on Johnny's fence, cutting off an apple peel with a knife and wearing a coonskin cap. Johnny says he's too puny and helpless to go onto the frontier, but the angel says, "'You've got faith and courage and a level head!' The angel convinces Johnny to go because apples are very useful as food and in cuisine. Johnny is given his three aforementioned tools, the tin pot hat, bag of seeds, and the holy book, and he goes on his way west. He walks and walks until he finds fertile soil, and he tills the land and plants seeds. Now, a group of animals all watch Johnny very timidly. They, uh, they don't trust him. Nature doesn't trust man, because they don't know what humans are, and they leave it to a skunk to make Johnny leave, because nobody likes skunks. And a skunk appears, and all of nature runs away. But Johnny diffuses the skunk's anger by petting him, and that causes the other animals to like him. So Johnny finishes his job, and he goes on to the next patch of fertile soil, planting apple seeds throughout the frontier. Occasionally he would pass a community that sprouted up around the trees he planted, and he would stop in as a stranger just to observe them. But he never said who he was, and nobody ever asked. Johnny walked and planted in the frontier for forty years, and the short ends with him having done as much work as he's done, but the angel returns, and he comes back for Johnny's soul, because Johnny, who is sleeping against the tree, has left this mortal coil. The angel brings Johnny to heaven, telling him that he can plant apple trees there, because we have a lot of work to do up there. Segment number four is called Little Toot. It is sung by the returning Andrews sisters. Little Toot is a tugboat who wants to be like his dad, Big Toot. But instead, he always gets in trouble. He plays in the water, he holds up large ships, he capsizes his dad at one point. He even spins out a large ship so far out of the water that it lands into the cityscape. For that act, Little Toot gets locked up by the Coast Guard, and he is put out to sea twelve miles out, not to return. While out at sea, a storm comes, and Little Toot sees a ship in dire distress. He radios SOS, but he also goes to save the ship himself. Little Toot hitches the ship to himself, and he keeps it safe out at sea, towing it in on his own in all of the bad weather. And everyone is happy at the end of the short to see that Little Toot has grown up, and he isn't playing anymore. Segment number five is a very quick version of the Joyce Kilmer poem, Trees, which you know as... I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. It is sung and played by Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians. We open in brilliant sunlight on a forest. It gives way to heavy rainfall and the animals scurry for cover. The rains of fall become a wintry snow scene, and then the sun shines behind a tree on the mountaintop, perhaps symbolizing the coming of spring. Very short, very sweet, done and done. Segment number six is called Blame It on the Samba. It features organist Ethel Smith and the Dinning Sisters singing some music for us. It features Donald, Joe Carioca, and the Ataquan Bird. Now, Donald and Joe are blue, literally and figuratively. And for what it's worth on the censorship thing, Joe is smoking a cigar, and there's no talk about censoring him. At any rate, the Ataquan Bird invites the two of them to the Café de Samba and awakens them with samba music. Donald and Joe return from the blue hue that they are to their normal colors. The Ataquan bird mixes a cocktail. 
he puts Donald and Joe inside of it and then jumps in. Because remember, the Atacon bird is crazy. And when he appears, weird things happen. The cocktail glass grows large, and then a live-action Ethel Smith appears with her organ inside of the glass and Donald and Joe swimming around her. And let me tell you, Ethel's organ is kind of crazy. It's got two levels of keys, and she's playing both at the same time, and she's going nuts. It segues into a dreamlike state where large musical instruments play the samba all around Donald and Joe, and everything devolves into the Ataquan bird causing craziness to happen before the piece comes to a close. Very much art for art's sake here. That's a lot of what we're dealing with. The final segment is Pecos Bill. It is sung by Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers. Trigger, the smartest horse in the movies, is there as well. And Bobby Driscoll and Luana Patton are with them. And they don't know who Pecos Bill is, much to everyone's chagrin. I mean, seriously, they are guffawing and guffawing about this. (laughs) Pecos Bill, of course, was the roughest, toughest cowboy to ever live. His horse was even named Widowmaker. Pecos Bill was raised by coyotes, they tell Bobby Driscoll and Luanna Patton, after he fell out of a wagon at the Pecos River. Bill saved Widowmaker, who was kind of not in good way, from a group of vultures who were hunting him because they found him out in the wild. And he grew up to be a cowboy, and Widowmaker grew up to be his horse. We see Pecos Bill's many adventures as he makes his name not only across Texas, but the entire frontier of the United States. But then he meets a woman named Slewfoot Sue, who just might be his equivalent. As we meet her, she's riding a fish as if it were a bucking bronco. And that's pretty much what Pecos Bill is on the land. It is love at first sight for Bill. He courts her, and they marry on the condition, of course. There's always a condition that Slewfoot Sue gets to ride Bill's horse. This is a condition that Widowmaker wants no part of. So she climbs on, and she rides him like a bull until Widowmaker kicks her off, and she bounces on the bustle in her dress, another thing she insisted on. She bounces higher and higher and higher until, boom, she lands on the moon. With Sue gone, Bill goes back to living with the coyotes, He said he doesn't want to be a part of humanity anymore. And coyotes howl at the moon the way they do, because that's what Bill did in his infinite sadness. The End, a Walt Disney production. Now, some of these segments, as far as what's wrong with them, are going to be very quick, and some of them are going to be belabored. Um, For segment number one, we're given the classic cartoon treatment, of course, of animals performing human work. So... When, in Once Upon a Wintertime, when Joe alone fall, fails rather to rescue Jenny, the bulk of the work is performed by a pair of small birds and a pair of squirrels, who fly a rope out to an ice floe that is teetering on the edge of a waterfall, and the horses are pulling them back. Now, I don't disagree that horses have the power to do this, but it's that Cinderella kind of scene where animals make beds and sew clothes, and... I mean, none of it's believable. Not on any level, way, shape, or form. And we're not dealing with a fairy tale here, we're dealing with, you know, a story that is not purported to be anything other than real. And uh, I promise you, since Cinderella is two episodes away, we'll speak a little bit more about that, even though that is a fairy tale. Now, the second segment, we're just dealing with the artistic interpretation here. The Bumble Boogie, there's really not much going on there. It's just a jazz flight of the bumblebee. Now, Johnny Appleseed, on the other hand, the third segment, yeah, I have some issues with Johnny Appleseed and the way it's presented. For example... He's presented as being a part of the American folklore. 
So are we expected to give over to fantasy? They talk about Paul Bunyan's axe. Paul Bunyan, legend. John Henry's hammer. John Henry, legend. Davy Crockett's rifle. But, but Davy Crockett's a real person. Davy Crockett was, yeah, I mean, the king of the wild frontier. But he was a real person. He was a representative in the Congress from Tennessee. And then we've got Johnny Appleseed. Paul Bunyan, John Henry, Davy Crockett, Johnny Appleseed whom we get frolicking in a tree picking apples. And are we just supposed to be okay with what's being presented to us? I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't take away from the good work of Johnny Appleseed. But what I, what I don't understand is why you would elevate him to the level of American folklore legend. And certainly I wouldn't even include Davy Crockett in there, you know. Pecos Bill is a legend with Paul Bunyan and John Henry. Like, those are tall tales. Those are stories. Davy Crockett's real. Johnny Appleseed is real. I don't... Don't mix fiction and reality. It doesn't work. At least, it doesn't work for me. And I think the more you think about it, it shouldn't work for you. Um, anyway, just to get back to the story, again, with more about animals doing what they do, we've got two birds ripping the peel off of an apple, and then a swarm of bees converge on the apple uh, to eat it, you know, Johnny doing right by nature, but he's not harmed in any way. The birds aren't pecking at him, the bees aren't stinging him. We are expected to be okay with this. I step outside, such as I did today, bring my child to the park, and within five minutes I've got three mosquito bites on my leg. About 50 bees converges on an apple, and nothing happens to Johnny Appleseed. I'm sorry, Walt Disney. I'm sorry, Walt Disney Productions, I'm not buying. I'm very surprised, by the way, with the religious tone of Johnny Appleseed. Now, on the one hand, there's plenty of documented evidence that the U.S. was not the most religious country in the 1940s. Much as many things after World War II, religiosity kind of fell by the wayside as a, uh, an activity you did when you had spare time. Uh, a lot of things fell out of favor uh, in the 1940s, and then the war ends in 45, and our soldiers come home, and we're dealing with everything that we're dealing with there. You know, a lot of issues, we don't have diagnoses of PTSD at that point. You just come home, and if you're shell-shocked, that's what you were, you were in the war, and you just, you don't talk about it. And that's that's what that generation grew up as. Uh, it wasn't until the 1950s that we really see the upswing in Christianity again, um, I believe Lyndon Baines Johnson, the United States president, was the first president who was baptized while in office. The constant uh, one nation under God argument that comes up in the Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge of Allegiance existed for 60, 70 years without the phrase under God in it. And it wasn't until the 1950s that that was added back to it. Or added to it in the first place, I should say. So the Christianity really starts to kick up the next decade. So to see Johnny Appleseed being made in the 40s was a little surprising. Now, on the other hand, I admit there's been Christian imagery in Disney movies to this point, but very little. And the only thing that is jumping out at me is the finale of Fantasia with Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria. Not much else has come into mind, and even then we're not dealing with um, too much in the way of religion Night on Bald Mountain is about the demons, and they're they're going wild at night, 
and they're being summoned by the devil, uh, which isn't really the devil. It just it's just it's an evil demon that's summoning them. And then Ave Maria in the morning is the monks that are walking by lantern to church to worship. Except that you don't really ever get so close in. It's not really explained. You're just seeing it as a visual. So a lot of it is really open to interpretation. Johnny is convinced by his angel that appears that to enter the wild frontier, all he needs is a tin pan hat, a bag of seeds, and a Bible. They don't even use the word Bible. They say a holy book. Just like that, with no goodbyes, no packing a wagon, no anything, Johnny Appleseed just often leaves to go to the West, without no life, without no gun, as the narrator says. Would you do that? Would I do that? Would anybody in their right mind do that? I mean in 2015, such as when I'm recording this. If I'm going to the store to get milk, I'm saying goodbye to my wife, or my kid, or whoever's in my house at that point in time. I don't understand how anyone could just, you know, want to be a part of the frontier so much, touched by an angel and decides, I'm going to do this, without really having the ability to do it. All right, maybe it's just more of a testament of luck. Maybe it's just artistic uh, interpretation here that maybe Johnny Appleseed wasn't as bad off as it makes it seem, but I'm not going out into the wilderness without a gun. And I'm not just getting up and going that day because I had a vision. And I don't buy that anybody would do that, then or now. Now, the animals would show Johnny love, which includes uh, several large cats and a brown bear, and they come over and they they give him, you know, respect because he's doing right by nature. But in reality, all of those animals would have ripped him to shreds. They would have destroyed him, eaten his carcass, wouldn't have thought once about it, let alone twice. They wouldn't discriminate because he didn't have a gun. They They don't know. We're not being treated to a class of animal as we get in Bambi, where they know how dangerous man is and they avoid him. They they wouldn't lick him, Johnny Appleseed, that is, the way they do. They would have destroyed him. The first field he gets into, if he even makes it that far, he would have been destroyed. The end. And such as the end, the end of everything I found wrong with Johnny Appleseed. The rest here, let's see, segment number four, little toot. You know, I've said this sort of thing before. If we're going to allow for an anthropomorphic whatever, in this case, tugboats, we have to give over to everything that happens. It becomes artistic choice, and there's really not much I can say about it. The fifth segment again as well. We're just dealing with artistic interpretation of the of the Joyce Kilmer poem, Trees. There's nothing I can say that's right or wrong about that. Now, if they did trees, but it was all bushes. If they did trees, but it was all skyscrapers. If they did trees, it was all clouds. I could say, what the heck are you doing here? but it was an interpretation of a poem, and it featured a tree. Not really much I could say about that. Go on with your bad self. Our friends Donald and Joe Carioca's adventures continue again in that sixth segment, and it's just kind of a a continuation of their own weird, dreamlike, drunk-like universe. You know, there's a lot of libations going on in in the Donald and Joe Carioca dream world, if you ask me. And that's fine. Donald wasn't being a crazy person this time. Well, crazy duck. He wasn't being crazy this time. And uh, crazy in a bad way. I mean, Donald's always a little crazy, but 
this wasn't so bad. Pecos Bill. Now, that's a fun folktale, not based in reality like Johnny Appleseed. So I forgive it. I forgive the craziness. And let me tell you, there's some crazy things that happen. Pecos Bill catches a lightning bolt by hand to light a cigarette. He beats up 50 vultures with his bare hands. He ropes rain clouds in California and drags them all the way back to Texas to not only fix the drought, but it fills up the Gulf of Mexico. Is it because we're being told a story by Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers? Because it's a story within a story? Or because it really is a legend? It's a told tale. That, that to me, if you're going to talk about Pecos Bill, you have to group him together with John Henry, and you have to group him together with Paul Bunyan. Johnny Appleseed is real, Pecos Bill is not. And that's what makes Pecos Bill really, really work for me. And it's the same sort of thing that makes Johnny Appleseed, along with the overt religious nature of it, not work. One little problem with Pecos Bill, though, and it's a 70-year-old cartoon, so you have to let it go a little bit. There's a Redskins reference for the natives. The climate has very much changed between then and now, such as you have, you know, television networks who won't even say Redskins when talking about the Washington Football Club. In fact, Washington Football Club is what they call them. A lot of times ESPN will do that. Uh, You might hear that on CBS or Fox if you're watching football on those channels. If you're watching baseball and they're talking about the Redskins, then you're either drinking or they're drinking. Either way, that doesn't make sense. And that's pretty much the end of the not making sense segment, or the faults as I tend to call them. Honest opinion time, because I know you're chomping at the bit. This is my favorite package film of the five we've seen. It is art for art's sake, and uh, you can dislike it, but you can't really fault it. And uh, I like just about everything I saw, with the exception of Johnny Appleseed. And even then, I I enjoy it. It, It's not bad. I'm just kind of taken aback by it. It was nice seeing Donald Duck with Joe Carioca, and it was nice seeing Donald Duck not doing the whole high toots routine and chasing after some girls, which he did to a very, very large extreme, and I don't even want to talk about it ever again. This package film has the least amount of framework to it, and maybe that's what makes me like it the most. We're not really dealing with, you know, silly segments in between things. The short begins with the title and who's in it, who's narrating it or singing it, and then you go right into the action, and then it ends. And then the next one begins with the title, and who's singing or narrating it, and then it begins. And they do it seven times. The only time you have any framing is at the very, very beginning, when you have the stage that's drawn on the easel. The end of the framing. And that makes it, I think, work a lot better for me. I I think the legend of Pecos Bill is downright hilarious, because it's allowed to be. When you've got a true folklore hero, uh, that you know you can make up whatever you want to make up about a, you know a legend, a tall tale, whatever. Johnny Appleseed is you know I guess more based in reality. However real that reality is, it might have grown to legend, but there really was a John Chapman, and there really is a Johnny Appleseed. You know, such as there really is a Davy Crockett. Pecos Bill is just not real. He's fun, and again, like I said, Appleseed was my least favorite segment, but I still enjoyed it. So, to get to the rating part, I would give this 8 out of 10. 
I've given the package films mostly fives and sixes, but this one gets an eight. Four out of five stars, if you do it that way. And, and not only would I watch this one again, I would introduce my child to it. I would sit her down and say, hey, you're going to watch some singing and some dancing, and you're going to have fun with this. And maybe she would. I really, I, I really don't know. I mean, she watched Frozen 25, 35, 45 times, and then decided one day she didn't want to watch it anymore. She didn't like being scared by it, even though she knew exactly what was happening. So, who knows? Children, right? Uh, I, I appear to be in the minority here that um, Melody Time is better than Make Mine Music. Uh, many of the reviews, the mixed reviews for Melody Time, said that it paled in comparison to Make Mine Music. But I think it was less bloated, and even though there's two long segments and the rest of it's kind of short, I think it works better. I feel like you have more room to breathe, more fun, and even the long segments aren't necessarily long. They don't feel long. They're actually kind of fun. So... I enjoy it. I hope you do too. And if you have never seen Melody Time, find it. Find it and sit down and watch it. It's probably the only package film I'm going to say that about. Um, Because next week, we talk about The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad from 1949. That is the last package film. And, well, I've seen it, and I don't enjoy it as much as what I've enjoyed today. So, that's the spoiler I have for you. As always, we thank you for listening. Feel free to go on iTunes and review us. We would like any and all reviews that you would like to give us. And until next time, my name is Nick. As always, I am your tour guide. I thank you for listening, and I look forward to coming back and being in your ear holes in another seven days. Take care. Bye. (laughs) 